Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist, uh, former contributor to many scurrilous news organizations, Vice, Canada Land, uh, Foreign Policy, current substacker at Bug-Eyed and Shameless. Everyone should check it out. Hello. Hey, hello. Today on the show, The Vice Guide to Vulture Capitalism, Final Edition. And won't someone think of the children? The Online Harms Act will, but will it also hand out life sentences for thought crimes? Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Guy Landry, Jason Hamel, Sarah McKenzie, Connor Anderson, Andrew Zavarotny, Sean Giles, Modupet Taylor Klein, and Ryan. Hi. My name's Ryan, and I'm a retail manager from Vernon, British Columbia. I support Candleland because they report on important issues you won't hear in legacy media, like the episode on Canada's broken divorce system and common season on police. However, there's one topic this union shop needs to cover more. The working class. Jesse, bring on Canada Labour. Workers at Vice Media are next on the industry-wide chopping block after its CEO says the edgy news outlet is undergoing major restructuring. Vice Media, which was once valued at $5.7 billion after filing for bankruptcy previously, is now shutting down Vice.com 
Vice Media has planned to cut down hugely on its workforce and will not publish any content on Vice.com, now turning their focus to social media platforms, announced the CEO. Justin, you worked for Vice Canada for a while, and I am guessing that you have uh, thoughts and opinions about the current situation, the news that came out last week. But first, let's have a look at how this is being handled in the news. Here's some headlines from right-wing publications. This is one of the main takes that was out there when the news came that Vice News is essentially dead. Breitbart News tweets, go woke, go broke. The Forked. Vice Media Closure, the latest example of go woke, go broke, and it's just as satisfying. I must have read uh, a few dozen tweets of people celebrating and dancing with this notion that this is an example of what happens when you write articles about social justice, when you write articles about better drug policy. There's just no market for woke journalism was the consensus on the right. What do you make of that? I mean, I think it's kind of like, you know, having your obituary of the queen pre-written for like a decade before she dies. And then you go and you make little tweaks as her life goes on. I feel like all of these things have been pre-written about Vice for 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 10 plus years. People have been champing at the bit to do their their little, you know, Vice went woke, went broke uh, sort of shtick. I don't give a shit. Like, I don't give a shit what Breitbart thinks. I don't really want to take a lot of business lessons from an outlet that has zero journalistic integrity. But, you know, I mean, a lot of the coverage I, th- I thought actually got hit this nail on the head, right? Vice is a victim of a, of, of a vampiristic sort of corporate class that believes that the news media can exist without journalists and that should be, you know, primarily stuffed with AI and garbage and that can be turned into a wildly profitable product if only it could expand to such a point where it sort of corners the market. And, and the idiots who ran Vice, you and I have, have talked on this show before and maybe I was a little more complimentary towards the idiots who ran Vice. But the idiots who ran Vice believed that they had to either grow or die, and they ended up doing both. They fattened themselves up with so much hedge fund debt that eventually the weight of the company imploded on itself and unemployed a ton of really talented journalists. And it fucking sucks. Like, there's been a lot of depressing days in news recently, but this one hits close to home, right? Like, as somebody who grew up with Vice, as somebody who remembers sitting in Montreal reading the glossy magazine and thinking to myself, like, this is what I want to do with my career, and then getting that dream job, and then having to quit <laughs> because that dream job kind of crashed into reality and then sort of watching these complete fucking morons sell out the company and and just screw up all of the good work everyone who worked there did. This one hits pretty close to home. I think we have to get into that and decode that for people who might not be like completely up to date with exactly what happened behind the scenes. And I think you and I might disagree on some of that, not all of it. But you are reflecting a lot of the coverage. I think there were two major takes. One was from the right, go woke, go broke, which I don't think you can justify. I agree with you in that. Like, unless you could point to go right and it's all right, like, is there some (laughs) vice equivalent where they've actually invested in news and journalism and not just opinion and, and tried to do what vice tried to do, which was really like it was the biggest attempt to try to get young people to build a business off of young people reading news. Yeah. And if you could do that on the right but not the left, they'd have a point. But I don't know that anyone's done that anywhere. There is no functioning media model on the right because you don't have to be profitable on the right to succeed. I mean, Truth Social is basically trying to turn itself into a broadcaster. It's hemorrhaging money. It exists only because the the former president of the United States is deciding to lend his quote-unquote credibility to it, right? I mean, the Daily Wire is probably the only successful model of right-wing news 
in America of this ilk, sort of anti-woke right-wing news. And again, it's it's financed by a whole bunch of crackpot operations that, that really aren't news fundamentally. So the right's criticism is completely meaningless to me. But you know, there is something that a lot of people have repeated this idea that at some point in the past, Vice sort of shed its, you know, heretical sort of style and opted for this sort of bland progressivism. And, you know, like there's some truth to it, right? Like, you know, Vice used to be edgelord humor. It used to be for at least a time defined by Gavin McGuinness's sort of like proto-Nazi bullshit. For a while, it was, you know, bro-y frat boy culture. And then it slowly evolved away from that and like to look back on that and think that was a mistake is so you know mind-bending to me like how how can you look at that and say you know if only vice had continued to torture interns and you know kind of obsessively you know pander to a very small niche of the market it would have done great like it's complete bullshit right like and, and you know what's more the idea that that vice was some sort of you know scoldy kind of uber elite progressive outlet like it's just not really the case i mean there's so many worse examples you can point to of outlets that sort of put their politics before everything and like vice by and large wasn't that i mean it it was a journalism first outlet for most of what it did well you're you're underserving a huge portion of, of the history of it but you know look i think it's possible it doesn't matter but it's possible that if it had maintained a very small scale as like a free indie Skate magazine that just did this kind of edgelord stuff, it could it could be sustainable at that scale. But very quickly, they were just interested in expansion for expansion's sake. Uh, I think that the shift to news was not a slow transition. It was a very purposeful and it was part of the play for bigger investment. Let's get into that. I think you're correct in saying that a lot of the coverage was not go woke, go broke and more reflective of, of the way you're coming at this. Here's what The Guardian, uh, Siren Kale in The Guardian, Vice's cunning, irreverent journalism is dead and executives with bloated paychecks helped kill it. So a lot of a lot of vilification of the executives, which uh, and the other place that I heard a lot of that was, and this was sort of delicious, a bunch of vice employees, according to them, went rogue because the CMS, the content management system, went down and 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 that was it. You couldn't publish. And, and weirdly and ironically, the last article that vice.com published was uh, about the Proud Boys, which is like a creation of vice founder Gavin McInnes, but they still had access to their podcast platform. And so like maybe this is the last thing Vice News will ever have published. A bunch of Vice employees went and put out a podcast shitting on the executives. Matthew Galt, Emily Lipstein, Anna Merlin and Mac Lemero, who's like the I think like one of the two remaining Vice Canada people, and they put out an end of Vice podcast that has since been removed from the internet, but we got a copy and let's play a little bit of it for our listeners right now. They they talk in this long conversation about managerial incompetence. Decisions that have been made at a management level have been so baffling. They talk about the lack of communication. When was the last time anyone talked to anybody in the C-suite? It's been like six months, right? Have they never really got like a, a clear idea from management about what the hell the company was doing? A completely inscrutable new strategy and department shuffling. It was really hard to tell what was going on. Everyone is very, very sure that the journalists are all excellent and wonderful. It was an incredible venue for talent. Like it, some of the people that I've worked with here are fucking incredible. They talk about the steady decline of resources within the company and how you could tell by the disappearing snacks from the office cupboards that the company was in trouble. But despite that, weirdly, there always seemed to be an endless supply of milk. 
They've gotten rid of every other snack. You know, we used to have like chips and cereal and whatever, but now it was just like cartons and cartons and cartons of milk, both dairy milk and non-dairy milk. Nobody knew where it came from or why it was there or why we had milk instead of, you know, equipment. And ultimately, they actually just like come out and say it like, fuck the C-suite. C-suite, because, you know, frankly, they can go fuck themselves. We would have done years more of it if, you know, the C-suite had pulled their head out of their ass. I'm hearing a lot of executive hate from you, from The Guardian, from Vice. Justin, I was shocked that such a smart group of journalists, and I do credit them with like the best journalistic attributes. They're skeptical, inquisitive, questioning of power, great research skills. How could they be so incurious and simple about money, about the basic mechanics of the company that they worked for and what that company's actual strategy is? Like, they don't even seem to know who owns Vice. Like, how how much do you know? Can I I ask you a question? I'm curious if you know this. How, How much do you know about Fortress Investment Group? Not a lot. I my understanding is that they came in to snap up a lot of the debt that was sitting in the company over the last couple of years. And this is my understanding. I, I, I don't have particularly good inside knowledge here. My understanding is that Fortress is a relatively new, I'll use the word partner, but I actually mean it's Vulture, in the sort of Vice ecosystem. Uh, because for the longest time, Vice actually kind of resisted, I think, the sort of hedge fund debt model. And actually, I don't think the journalists who worked there were in curious. We were actually really curious about this. We were actually asking about this a lot. And for a lot of it, the vice leadership kind of gave us what we knew was an incomplete picture. But, but you know, basically, as I understand it, and again, I'm not in the C-suite. I was never in the C-suite. I've never, <laughs> never rose before, like, the, the, the deputy editor level. But, but listen, you know, for a lot of the time that I was there, the expansion of vice were financed by deals. Shane Smith was the head of the company because he did deals. He was a deals man, right? And he would go and he would, you know, sit in a room with a bunch of executives and he would pitch them on partnerships. And those partnerships were meant to sort of create a halo effect on their brand using Vice's ability to reach a really particular demographic that advertisers and media companies fucking love, right? So that's why Disney comes in and gives you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. That's why Rogers does its partnerships. You know, that's why HBO takes on the uh, on the news show, right? All of these deals are liquid cash. Like, they were investments. But a lot of times they were investments into expansion, right? So as the company keeps taking on this money to expand, it's actually not bringing in the revenue to justify even its kind of ground-level operation. And yet it's adding to it, adding to it, adding to it. So years go by and a lot of those deals fall through, right? Because those companies are just not seeing the return that Shane Smith promised them in a meeting years ago. That's what happened to the Rogers deal. The new Rogers execs come in and go, what are we doing? We're paying for a mobile show that like, yeah, looks great, but no one's watching. We're paying for a TV station where a lot of our shows that we're financing keep getting killed at the cutting room. Like, what what are we doing here? And they pull the plug on these things. And suddenly Vice has this huge operation that it can't finance anymore. That's when I think a lot of the debt comes in. That's when the hedge funds start taking more and more control. And you know that's where the Saudi government comes in. The Saudi government for propaganda yeah. purposes. So I, I think that needs even a, even a bit more breakdown for people. And the, the fundamental here is that the basics of can we make more money by publishing news than we spend – can we make a profitable news organization was never the priority and they never hit their profit targets because they built a business based on, like you say, speculation and expansion, that the actual goal was always to find another sugar daddy and or a sucker right. during a low investment period. 
why try to make a small amount of profit, which news might only be good for a small amount of profit, if that at this point, when you can get $100 million, $300 million investments from the likes of Disney and the Murdochs and whatnot. So you're kind of describing the wrong monster because I think you're describing these wonderful journalists and the vampire is these, the executives are sucking the blood from the living body. It's more of like the journalists themselves are part of a make work project that in the interests of expanding, you need to have a new show, a new vertical, a new this. I want to tell you about Fortress because after you have run out of suckers and there's no more big Murdoch style money and you hit a wall and you go bankrupt, that's when Fortress comes in. Here's some companies that Fortress invested in. Theranos. We all remember Theranos, the blood. Uh, they make they make Netflix Yeah, Elizabeth series. Holmes, yeah. Yeah. After the Lacmagantic derailment, they invested in a railway. Everything that they bought is dead. Jesse, I, I hate to break this to you, but nobody at the company was sitting there going, God, can we please get Fortress assets in device? Like, nobody in the newsroom was like, God, things will be great once Fortress caps. Like, when your house is on fire, Fortress comes and says, hey, let me make you an offer on that house. I'll give you $1,000. And, and to be clear, for the past, like, year, year and a half, actually probably longer than that, maybe two years, everyone I've talked to in the newsroom has been sitting around going, we don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. Everyone knew this day was coming. Like, So no one was excited. I'm not saying that they were surprised, but but I was I was a little taken aback by their anger. They had have this scorn, which seems childish to me, which you're displaying, for the executives and managers who like came in recently, you know, most, most of these people, as if the bonuses, if that money had only gone to the newsroom, it would have saved the company or something, as if like the bonuses are corrupting the company and a parasite in the company, as opposed to what those bonuses are, which is they're rewarding those executives for doing their jobs, not for yeah. corrupting their, their jobs are to strip the company of its assets and, to, and we're angry at that. To lay people off. <laughs> That's the part we're angry at. Like, but did you like, not know that? You're angry. Like, how do you work for Vice and not know that's what's going on? But I think you're misrepresenting the anger a little bit because the anger did not just suddenly bubble up in the last six months, right? Like, like the people who just got lost their jobs, who have known that this has been coming for quite some time, like upwards of a year, the anger that they're directing is not at the recent leadership. It's at Shane Smith. Like it's at the people who did these deals then. And I remember being at the company then when these deals were being done. And there was a level of sort of, sort of toxic optimism that went into believing those deals would work because what we were told was sort of, you know, we'll finance out will make real revenue and that will kind of filter into the news operation. The news operation is the brand building exercise. So it's fine if it loses money. The news operation is the thing that gives us the cachet that lets us do those deals. There's a certain logic to that, right? But we also hit a point where we were sitting around going, this doesn't make any sense. This is not a, you know, a $5 billion company. This is old news. Like if you trusted Shane Smith then, you know, shame on him. But if you trusted him like two years ago, shame on you. What should we have done? Launched a mutiny? <laughs> like, what do you want here? No, like, you know, you know, and, and, and I'll say this. I, in my freelance career, I worked for many idiotic gambles yeah. that I knew were either corrupt or were just like some idiot wasting money on a magazine. And you say, I don't really care that there's no sound business model here. I'm being paid to do journalism. I'm being paid to practice my craft, to tell the truth to people and to make a living. And I'm going to use this. And I don't think there's any shame in people who stayed yeah. in. But but I'll put it this way. Here's an analogy for you. You're on a big jumbo airliner here. It's like a big, beautiful plane and you're lucky to get a seat. But you notice that the guy named Shane in first class is filling his suitcase with cash and jumping out with a golden parachute. And, you know, the captain's <laughs> voice comes on and says, everything's fine, people. We have enough fuel to make it. And then you notice the flight crew are filling their knapsacks with cash and they're jumping out with golden parachutes. And, and they go, uh, the pilot comes on and says, don't worry, everything's fine. And then the pilot fills up a bag with cash and jumps out uh -huh. with a golden parachute. Like maybe the plane ain't going to make it. 
Understand that if any of us were given the option of giant bags of cash and a golden parachute, we would have taken it. That option wasn't available to us. And the people who just died in the plane crash, to torture this metaphor, are allowed to be angry. <laughs> like, you know what I'm no, saying? No, like, be, be angry with the, with the executives. But the executives were doing exactly what vulture capitalists are there to do, which yeah. is which is to, to, to strip the place of its of its wiring and every bit of value. And they'll continue to do it. They'll continue to extract because there's still like zombie traffic that goes to the website. And they'll monetize that without any journalism. But let, let, me, let me just say this because – I think this is really the crucial bit, right? We, we kind of talk about all this kind of sort of fatalistically as though like this thing was sort of baked in eight years ago and there was no other option for this. But it's not the case, right? Like, you know, you, you, we talked- Everybody ago, but, else saw it. Like, but, but, but hang on, but there was always an option for Vice to right size, right? And like that would have meant layoffs. That would have meant kind of pulling back some of these operations. That would have meant kind of focusing on the on the core, maybe like, you know, oh, news you operations. Oh, you silly thing. You're still no, saying but, right sizing. You're still saying, <laughs> is that what they told you when they came in? Don't worry about the layoffs, Justin. We're right sizing. It's all going to be okay. But but hang on. Hey, hey, listen to what I'm saying. The, the leadership never actually wanted to right size, right? They wanted to keep expanding into places that made no sense while also gutting the newsroom, right? Like they wanted to right size it where they could do that maximum wealth extraction. What I'm talking about is, you know, actually having a vice newsroom and getting rid of the TV station, getting rid of all of these crazy partnerships, selling off the advertising art, like getting, going back to basics and just accepting that you're going to be a newsroom of like, you know, 80 people worldwide and no longer being a giant money pit for people to make, you know, dividends off of. And that was never going to happen. And so I guess my point is there was always a way for this to not go terribly or at least less terribly. But of course they weren't going to do that because they wanted to fatten themselves up like a Christmas goose and get slaughtered so they can make their million dollar bonuses. And so that George Soros's capital fund could make the maximum return for shareholders. And that's what fucking sucks about this industry. We have divergent purposes and that bums me out and we're allowed to be bummed out. And you can do this sort of cynical thing and say, Oh, well this is always going to happen. But like I'm Jesse Brown. I have a, you know, a, a relatively profitable right size news organization, but I would like that to be, true of other places as well and i'm allowed to have that tiny modicum of hope okay you, you have a little aftertaste of kool-aid in the mouth god bless you <laughs> listen man let's not waste the lesson of this okay which is this can't work yes the ad supported model won't work for enterprise investigative journalism like let's take that away from this if nothing else i mean listen i i don't totally i i agree to it to some degree right like i think canada land works like i have a Substack. people pay me directly for journalism like, you jumped like, off the plane you didn't get much in your fanny pack also god true. bless you you got off the plane at the right time i also yeah i mean that's also true i i it's not as though i was unaware but how bad things were that's again why i quit but of course i also quit and then went and took a contract at buzzfeed news so there is something wrong with me let's be very very clear that's just the um, beginning of that but yeah yeah i know listen I, I i think you know reader supported journalism is going to be a foundation of journalism going forward but it also can't be the only model this episode is brought to you by the center for addiction and mental health right now there is an opioid crisis right now there is a mental health crisis but right now it is mental health week and what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars and I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Justin, on this program, we want to make sure people don't miss important news stories. Do you have one to duly note today? I do, and it's it's a bit stupid. It, it's been it's been the subject of like a, a minor, you know, social media, online, Twitter, blue sky, you know, main character day. It's this piece that that got published in the Atlantic this week, and it's it's by a guy, Adam Rubenstein. He he's a former New York Times op-ed editor and author in the conservative media, largely. He wrote this thing for the Atlantic titled, I was a heretic at the New York Times, and it has been dragged relentlessly by people online, in part, not exclusively, but in part because of this opening anecdote that he tells. I'll just recap it really briefly because I think it's really funny. Um, He talks about doing this orientation session at the first day of uh, his job at the New York Times. And he got asked what his favorite sandwich was as part of an icebreaker. And he says, the spicy chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A. And apparently the HR representative says to him, uh, we don't do that here. They hate gay people. And th- this little opening anecdote has been just completely torn apart by people who were like, oh, you know, this is completely made up. Total bullshit. And, and people have seized on it as evidence that the whole thing is kind of a crock. But I actually, you know, I'm going to expose myself as a slight heretic here and say that I actually really liked this piece. And I actually think it's really worth a read because I think it kind of identifies a problem that we've been really blasé about in the media over the last little while. And it's the sort of activistification of some media outlets and some people, especially working journalists in the media. But he sort of describes, and this guy admittedly kind of sounds like a bit of a dick, to be totally honest. But he kind of goes through and talks about his experience um, editing an, a really controversial op-ed from, from Senator Tom Cotton, talking about some kind of the interpersonal dynamics with his co-workers at the Times. And he sort of hones in on this real impulse in the media these days to sort of call out things that their own publication are are doing, you know, open letters, internal town halls, these internal Slack channels that can be all kind of whipped up into a fervor and get people angry about what their their operation is doing and get them kind of denouncing and, and demanding resignations from inside. And I'm reading through this and it's just struck me how recent of a change this is and how kind of we just let it sort of adopt itself over the last decade without a lot of kind of conversation about it. Like this would have been impossible to imagine 10 years ago in a major newspaper. Like there was no internal activist groups inside of a newspaper. If if a newspaper ran an op-ed you didn't like, you went, oh, fuck, well, whatever. Some people in this company are idiots. And you went about your day. The idea now that sort of every single action of a of a news outlet has to be sort of internally verified or resisted against inside, I find really interesting. It's not entirely a bad thing. 
it's not entirely a good thing either. I think this piece is worth a read, even if you kind of disagree with a lot of parts of it, as you probably should. But I think it's a really interesting insight into how this has sort of taken hold over the New York Times in particular, but a lot of other news outlets. Um, it's been interesting to try to situate myself within it because like, I've been uh, a participant and advocate of pointing fingers and calling things mm-hmm. out. That's sort of what we do as journalists. But I do think that it has shifted to something where it's not simply, uh, I think people should be free to criticize or say, I don't think we should have published this or this is bad or this is good. But it has crept into this thing of like, and therefore people need to go. And therefore we don't ever talk to this person ever again. And therefore we don't ever listen to this person or everything needs to adhere to one point of view. And it's it's in a liberalism and in, in, in the true meaning of liberalism, which is like we, we need to have divergent contrary opinions. That is what open debate is about. And I, I would hate to work for any media organization that always agreed with itself. Yeah. You know, I, and I'd hate yeah. to listen to any media organization that I always agreed with. I don't pay for media to to just tell me things I already know or, or tell me that I'm right all the time. Duly noted. Cheers and congratulations to Ryan Jesperson, yet, yet another refugee from radio who's doing great work in podcasting. He got an interview with, with the prime oh, minister. Yeah. You know, hey, uh, game, respect, game. What a get. Hope that does wonders for your audience. Good stuff. I would certainly take that interview. We've asked for many interviews with the prime minister. However... This thing that Trudeau is doing where he very carefully selects some representative from like digital alternative media and grants them access for a big sit down interview when he can be absolutely assured that he is going to walk away with a win. And if you listen to this, Prime Minister Trudeau, welcome to the Real Talk Studio. Welcome to Alberta. Glad to be here in person. You've you've always been the personable guy. You've always been the likable guy. Uh, you've you've had the charisma, and that's carried you in past. These people still think I won the 2015 election because of nice hair. What we won was because of the Canada Child Benefit. For what it's worth, we're running as we speak an unofficial, unscientific Twitter poll. Who would you rather have a beer with? And and we've put you on there, uh, Mr. Polyev, Mr. Singh, and, and Mr. Bernier. And you're pulling all right, 59 percent. Which is okay, which is the highest approval hold on, you've hold seen on, all week. I don't so. get to say, oh, you know what? I don't look at national polls and then react to your little poll and say, oh, isn't that great? <laughs> My little looks poll. like people actually like me. I'll note that we're at time here, so your team can come yank no, you no, if they no, need no, to. No, I, 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 this is a good conversation. Okay, I want to acknowledge that you catch more heat out of Alberta than anywhere else in the country. But you're here banging on the table. Yeah. Your enthusiasm is palpable. <laughs> but but you and I both know you're still not going to get a lot of credit. If I was worried about credit, I never would have bought the Trans Mountain pipeline. If there's one thing I know you can appreciate. It's a good pair of socks. And so I want to leave you with these. These are Real Talk socks that are actually not for sale. Uh, These are only available to our Real Talk patrons. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Ryan. We appreciate it. Canada Land has excellent socks. But if ever the Prime Minister sits down with us for an interview, he's not getting a free fucking pair (laughs) because it does not help our brand for the Prime Minister to wear our socks. We do not want the Prime Minister to advertise for our independent news company. We, we are not giving him free socks. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, listen, this is an interesting problem. I'm, I'm actually writing a thing about the PM and his eight years in power and however many more he has left for the walrus. Check it out. It'll be out later this spring. I think it's going to be very good, and I think you'll be very interested in it for exactly this reason. But, but listen, government's eight years in power tend to Borough anyway, right? Like I remember the dying days of the Harper government trying to, I think I came on the show talking about my, my kind of quixotic crusade to get him to actually take questions consistently from journalists. 
And the Trudeau government is really interesting because it remains at least sort of notionally super open, right? Like the 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 Trudeau does press availabilities upwards of twice a week and um, doesn't limit questions. You know, actually takes a considerable number of them, but also has a habit for not answering anything, right? Like famously, you can see this on TV every time he does a press conference. Every question that gets put to him gets kind of met with a value statement, a couple talking points, and sort of a sidestep of the question itself. The interviews that he's doing are either too short to be meaningful or sort of too, you know, so so soft and long and sort of character-driven that it, that it doesn't actually get anywhere useful. I've never seen the guy sit down with a really serious, like, like on any of the major scandals with somebody who's just not going to let him evade. There's been an interesting shift because his first mandate, he did this actually a fair bit, and he actually subjected himself to some tough interviews and seemed to actually enjoy them. He also did these town halls kind of consistently through his first term where he got grilled by kind of random people. A lot of the questions were, were really kind of top level, but some of the questions were really tough and some of the questions were angry and like, you know, full of invectives and whatnot. But that has changed over the last two terms for a variety of reasons, which I won't even get into, but, you know, read my piece in The Walrus later this spring and, and maybe you'll learn something about it. Duly noted. All right, uh, let's talk about Bill C-63, the Online Harms Act. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the second attempt at this, and this is the third major piece of legislation from this government um, in, a, in a suite, a trio of fucking with the internet uh, legislation. Uh -huh. um, and, I, and I'll say, uh, I, you know, being very, very vocal and critical of the first two as I think pieces of legislation that were largely driven by old media for the purpose of preserving their, their place and creating new revenue – this is not that. The Online Harms Act, I will say, it's an attempt to deal with rising hate on the internet. It is an attempt to deal with sexual predators on the internet, child pornography, revenge porn, deepfakes, exploitation, blackmail, like really serious things. And I think that that is actually legitimately what it's trying to solve. Is it going to help? Yes and no. So, so listen, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, the initial iterations of this bill, I think, were, were catastrophically bad, right? Like, the initial idea for this bill that envisioned everything from, like, forced to take down orders from misinformation to forced takedowns for hate speech to some sort of, you know, digital online social media czar that could sort of order any sort of action that they deemed necessary to protect from kind of these amorphous harms. Like, the initial versions of this were horribly bad. By the way, initial versions of this bill also included, uh, based on leaks, mostly to the globe also included uh, age verification for porn, really similar to a piece of legislation um, that passed at least a first vote in the House of Commons with the support of the Conservatives and the NDP and everybody else uh, over the last couple of weeks. It probably won't become law, but we don't actually know. But anyway, the Liberals supported that initially and then suddenly kind of removed it from the bill probably because of all the criticism it got. This bill looks like it was tailor-made to sort of avoid criticism from earlier iterations, which again is good because this government is not always good at internalizing criticism and warning, especially from, from experts. You know, there's good parts of this bill. It actually creates takedown orders for child pornography, for child sexual exploitation material, and for revenge porn. That is the thing we've needed for a very, very long time because in Canada, short of criminal charges, there's not a lot of great options to do this. Having somebody to kind of spearhead that initiative is really good, and we're already behind several other countries in that respect. Creating an office that sort of mandates at least basic level regulation at the service level is good, even if it won't apply to the places that need it the most, like, let's say, Rumble or BitChute or, or whatever. 
But there's also some really bad stuff in this bill that I think is also worth underlining. Like what? It's more symbolic, I think, than actual. But there's a there's a statute in here that would up the penalty for sharing basically genocidal propaganda up to life imprisonment, which I know is supposed to be sort of a, a denunciation of this speech. It's supposed to be, again, more symbolic than actual. But the idea of, of sentencing someone to life in prison for what is fundamentally speech just completely outstrips, I think, kind of reasonableness. The, the, the prior maximum penalty was five years in prison. To go from five years in prison to life in prison just seems absurd. But of course, it, no one's actually going to get that charge. But the really bad thing in here is that they're bringing back what, what used to be Section 13 in the Canada Human Rights Act. This was a provision that was like largely used to settle scores between people who didn't like each other. Mm-hmm. They're bringing it back as this effort to sort of litigate online harms and hate speech online. It will basically allow you, if you feel like a bit of online speech has impugned your uh, your human rights, if you feel like it's brought you harm in some sort of kind of abstract way, you can bring a case before the Human Rights Tribunal. And you can ask the Human Rights Tribunal to unmask the account that said this to you. You can ask them to order a takedown of the offending material. And you can ask for penalties up to $20,000. Who wants this? This is such a crazy venue for people to try to settle online Twitter feuds through a quasi-judicial body that is going to take up all of their time and energy, that is going to be a a free speech nightmare. It's going to lead to all of these things being overturned by the Court of Appeal. Why they chose to put this in here is completely beyond me, and oh God, I hope they get rid of it. No, it's not. It's not beyond you. I mean, I I think you're familiar with this government enough at this point (laughs) to understand that that, – to basically take a position that is more symbolic than practical, to grandstand on something like we are protecting people, we're doing something about hate, and we're doing something for the children, even though the like without doing the grown-up work of dealing with how it's going to play out and kicking that problem down the road is exactly what this government does. Uh, look, I'll give credit here. The change in this bill from the previous one, rather than trying to keep up the technology, creating a, a series of duties – for the big tech giants and, and shifting responsibility onto them is, is the right way to handle this and say, you have a duty of care, you have a d- duty of responsibility to protect children. We're not going to get into the weeds of every single thing and create horrible, like immediate takedown restrictions. That seems to be the right approach. And I think that the, the, the tech giants are actually grateful for that instruction and that guidance. Like, okay, we, we will assume responsibility because they want to reform their legitimacy as uh, and not just be this like hated social actor. But yeah, there's a lot of problems here. One is that there's weird distinctions between digital speech and like if you say it somewhere else, like print, like why should there be a different punishment if I say it on the internet? It's hard to see how this is, you know, there are even like Canadian tech companies that are like moving away from our regulations. I'm not sure what they could do about that, but like Rumble, you know, they, they left Canada. I think, you know, largely, were they in Florida now? They still notionally have an office in Toronto, at least according to some of their corporate documents, which I'm intrigued by. And this is a fatal flaw of it. If you can't capture the worst actors and you're only going to sort of capture the ones that are already, at least according to their own statements, following all of the regulations you have envisioned, then what does this really do? At most, I think at the worst case scenario, it actually could create an overly high regulatory compliance cost for startups. Um, and I want startups, right? Like I want someone to challenge Facebook. That's right. Otherwise, you're locking in the incumbents. The only, exactly. the only companies that could possibly comply with this are mega companies. And then you're basically, they're going to be here forever. And I think you hit the nail on the head with like the uh, the biggest eyebrow raiser of this whole thing, raising it from five years to life, as if that's the problem, like hate speech only had a five-year penalty in prison. That That's not why hate speech laws didn't yeah. work. Like, hey, I'm going to say this hateful thing anyhow because I'm only going to go to prison for five years. Oh, now it's life? I guess I won't say the hateful thing. The problem with hate speech laws 
is that very few people are ever investigated and fewer still are charged and fewer still are ever convicted. They don't work. Like, I, I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of somebody going to prison for life for something they said. And it's it's a classic example of the Streisand effect, right? Like when the Canadian government tried to go after Ernst Zundel, one of the most notorious Holocaust deniers, it made him into a neo-Nazi mega celebrity, right? Like he, his profile shot up. And ultimately they convicted him before it was overturned because the law they used to convict him was complete bullshit. So you get to this point where you also make people martyrs, right? Like if yeah. part of their whole shtick is, you know, free speech and kind of free speech absolutism, if you start prosecuting them for speech, they, they – suddenly have a, a a coalition behind them that goes much broader than their previous one. I think that's inevitable. The people they're trying to capture with this will be like, it's the easiest thing to skirt around, make a law against calling for genocide. Well, we know that calls for genocide are always coded. The only people who this will apply to are people who are like trying to get persecuted in order to make themselves murders from this. Well, there's like, an like, argument to be made that like it, it will predominantly apply to people who are already violent. Like it'll be a, a charge upgrade as opposed to a standalone charge. Like that's the argument, right? Somebody um, commits an act of violence and then with it, you know, I call for, for genocide. But the problem with that is that they also added another provision, which is actually a good thing, where they created hate crimes as a standalone provision into the criminal code. Right now, you only do it as a charge upgrade at sentencing, right? So hate becomes a factor when you at post-conviction. Now they're moving it up front where you can lay that charge when they're first arrested, like the Americans do. And that's a really good thing. But that also means that you can access that life in prison for a hate crime through that provision. You don't need an upgrade like a genocide clause. So any hateful act can be could possibly life life in prison. It's still up to the judge's discretion, right? It doesn't mean that just because you made you did hateful graffiti or you you kicked someone in the shins and said a racial slur, you're going to go to prison for life. There's there's still that range of kind of reasonable sentencing, but it does mean that if you commit, let's say, a neo-Nazi act of terror, then they can lay that charge immediately and suddenly life is on right. the table from the get-go. I mean, neo-Nazi acts of terror are pretty easy to understand, but like other things are a lot more complicated. If we return to our original conceit here, which is we do have a lot of problems on the internet that need to be addressed. Well, we have laws against blackmail. We have laws against harassment. We have laws against death threats. We have laws against hate speech. We have privacy laws. We have all kinds of laws. And anybody who has been abused or harassed and has turned to the police when these things happen online will tell you the problem is the cops don't care. Oh, listen, I could not agree more. Like I wrote a piece in The Globe a handful of months ago warning the government against exactly the kind of legislation that luckily they did largely avoid. And, you know, part of it was – That's probably because of you because they're, they're – <laughs> You know what? I'll take credit for it. Thank you, this, Justin. You're Thank welcome. You this is 100 percent me. So many of the problems online could already be criminalized, could already be prosecuted and charged for. Cops are incompetent and lazy and bad, right? Like, I, and not not across the board. Some of them are, are better than others. There's some hate crime units in some local police departments that are doing good work. Largely, they don't, though. Rather than trying to create new sort of Byzantine Rube Goldberg machines to to, to criminalize this stuff, how about we make the cops do their fucking jobs? Like, it, it's not rocket science. We have to start telling police either – you start actually uh, dealing with real cases of harassment and stalking uh, and revenge porn and child porn and you actually start laying charges for this or we're going to cut your fucking funding because why are we paying you to do your jobs if you, if you won't do them? This drives me insane. I can't tell you how much this makes me completely crazy. But to try and capture all this stuff through some the, 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 these ridiculous new like safety commissions and regulatory apparatuses and tribunals and all this, it's just a waste of time and money, money and energy that will ultimately not lead to any good outcomes for the people who are actually being stalked and harassed and targeted online. 
that is Shortcuts for this week. Uh, Justin, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. You can email me about what you heard today at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Our website is canadaland.com. Justin Ling, you've got a, a Substack? Yeah, I'm on Substack, Bugide, and Shameless.com. Um, it's pretty good. I like it a lot. I'm also on Blue Sky and Mastodon. I am largely not on Twitter because it's a terrible place and you should all leave. You're going to be writing about your uh, your thoughts on the demise of Vice News. Uh, where can people catch that? Yeah, I, I have a, kind of a, a long column that'll be coming out in the Globe. I think Friday, the Globe and Mail. Um, it, it kind of encapsulates my anger and frustration with all of this stuff. So you should give it a read. This episode is produced by James Nicholson with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. It is the only way. The only way that journalism will survive is if listeners like you pay for it. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. Also, you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But really, more than anything, people do this because they want to become a part of the solution to the journalism crisis, and they want to keep our work free and accessible for everybody else. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.